Hello everyone, it's March 28th, 2023. This week we got to talk about what we know so far about Terran 1. It didn't make it to orbit, but it was a valiant first try, and any 3D printed methane-fueled rocket is always worth discussion. It's another post-anomaly analysis, so let's get into it and lift off. Ben is, I don't know, out cold. <laughs> he's... Yeah, Ben's had some serious uh, work and travel uh, recently, and so he's he's kind of convalescing right now. And so, yeah, I believe zonked out was his uh, specific words. So, <laughs> okay, yeah, 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 zonked, zonked out. Yeah, so I hear that Chang'e Seven lost the UAE as a partner, and apparently this has something to do with ITAR. You say? Yeah, yeah, evidently. Uh... Uh, ITAR uh, is what's gotten the UAE out of uh, joining them for the Chang'e 7 mission to the South Pole. And so, uh, South Lunar Pole, I should say, <laughs> specifically. And um, it, they were going to have their uh, uh, one of their little rovers. Uh, uh, the UAE was going to have one of their Rashid rovers on, on it, which they currently have one on um, uh, the Hakuto-R mission for JAXA. But evidently, they were going to get the Rashid 2 to fly with, um, you know, Tonga 7. But unfortunately, uh, it sounds like that agreement fell foul of ITAR. So so there's some sort of technology in these rovers that comes from the U.S., right? Because these are like, this must be U.S.-made components. And that's where, like, ITAR comes in because uh, I didn't, cause because at first I was like, well, I don't see how the U.S. factors into this at all. Yeah, I guess maybe it's in order to, for uh, UAE to still have access to working with the U.S. on certain technology, mm. kind of like an exclusivity agreement. Like if they learn about some of the sensors and tech for collaborating with U.S. missions, then they can't go and collaborate with China under this. So, so specifically, ITAR obviously applies to U.S. citizens and businesses, but also foreign companies and individuals that have access to items of U.S. origin designated under ITAR. So basically, UAE had to make a choice, I guess, whether to, to keep having access to uh, some of the things that they're you know, collaborating with the U.S. on um, that is ITAR-restricted, uh, or uh, choosing, I guess, to violate it and I guess, get hit with whatever sanctions come from that to work with China on this particular mission. It's interesting because like, ITAR just seems to affect – it's one of those – policies or whatever you want to call it that just seems to affect everyone and everything and like it's almost like you can't get away from it you know like if you talk to somebody who knew somebody who worked on something and it's like <laughs> oh you're out yeah because yeah right because it's, it's much more expansive than anything that's you know a weapon like you know a, a lens i guess could fall under itar yeah. a piece of software that does multiple things could still fall under itar if one of those things could be you know weaponized i guess in nature i mean right friggin uh what was it like a panel or a uh, an umbilical or something on the um the mobile launch tower for SLS was ITARD, right? I think there was a... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it could have been a strut or something. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, I mean, how many times have I seen a YouTube video and it's, you know, a factory tour of some sort? And then you can look at stuff around, you know, that's like laying there in the hangar or the bay, but then you can't look behind this one thing. Like, like there's just mm -hmm. this one little thing you can't see, you know? There, there, there's, mm -hmm. there's always, like, specific things. Yeah, I mean, it's not, I, like... The mission's still going to do its thing, and given how ambitious they've been, I'm sure it'll be a great success. But, you know, it's it's more of a kind of blocking uh, collaborations, I feel like, is kind of the big takeaway from this, you know? Because the Rashid 2 rover isn't crucial to the Chang'e 7 mission, but it's a nice, you know, thing to go and have another nation's spacecraft flying on yours and another nation's rover flying on yours with spacecraft. Uh, but yeah, no, I... Uh, 
and so in the future, I just wonder how much uh, it's kind of, uh, you know, meant to be this kind of uh, big powers kind of uh, going blow for blow against each other, trying to one up each other in the space realm. So, well, we don't have a whole lot to say just yet, but, you know, why not talk about it? Um, that Terran 1 launch a couple days ago, Relativity didn't quite make it to orbit with that rocket, but they came close. I mean, they got, you know, halfway there, kind of. I mean, depending on how you look at it, uh, in terms of what's the word I'm looking for? Delta V. <laughs> in terms of Delta V, maybe not quite that far. Did you watch this launch when it was happening? I kind of sort of forgot about it. I mean, I watched just afterwards. I, I did catch it and I, and I was lucky because our Discord, I basically had just gotten home from being out with some people and uh, the Discord started blowing up with people commenting on the launch. And it's got some of the most beautiful pictures <laughs> I've ever seen uh, that were taken afterwards. But like the launch itself was just fascinating. Like the, the, the flame of the methane, you know, <laughs> the Methalox engines is crazy looking. And I don't know if I just hadn't been paying that much attention or the contrast was different on this particular, you know, tracking shot or whatever, but I couldn't, I don't remember in night launches not being able to see any of the rocket itself and just seeing nothing but flame, even on the, like the close in shots, just like flame seemingly coming out of nowhere. That was my big takeaway when I first watched it, like on a set. I was like, dude, it just looks like... <laughs> It's just like there's this, you know, nine uh, butane lighters kind of just yeah. <laughs> roaring behind the <laughs> behind nothing. There's some photos that are, like you said, just really, really pretty. And that's, I imagine, just because it's a methane flame, right? Um, and it mm. just burns that beautiful color blue. Uh, it really does look science fiction-y. It looks something like out of, I don't know, like a, like a sci-fi disco or something. It's just like it's that kind of a color scheme. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there's a lot of ice just falling everywhere as it launches, which apparently um, might just be just because of the texture of the rocket uh, because mm. it's 3d printed at least that's uh you know i was watching the scott manley video on it you know because uh he's always good to watch and that was his take mm -hmm. uh, that possibly that might be why so it like really clings to the rocket yeah there was there was a there was like a time lapse i think it was uh showing the rocket on the pad after they had fueled it and i mean it was so covered nice the all the you know the writing on the side relativity and the logo that just disappeared it just looked like a a, a featureless <laughs> stick essentially but yeah so the launch beautiful the first stage portion of the flight beautiful um one important thing you know because this obviously was a test flight and one thing that i had read several times in every account of this is that one big goal was to make sure that they can make it through max cube because obviously when you're testing the structural load on a 3d printed rocket that's something that you might want to know and no issues there so um and i think that they had said um i can't remember the name of the ceo but he had said that that was probably Oh, Tim Ellis. Tim Ellis, that's right. That was uh, the main goal was just to make sure that it could do that, you know, and mm. if that's good, besides that, it's just icing on the cake. So mm. they made it through Max Q. <laughs> um, uh, shortly after that, once the main engine had cut off, there was stage separation, and then it looked like the engine came on uh, to some degree 
for you know a second or two and then just kind of like fizzled out mm. i you know watching it, it looked like over the course of about a minute there was some kind of exhaust i don't know what was going on if it was trying to restart and restart but uh mm. it looked it looked like there were several attempts at a restart the only thing i could think of as far as what was going on um but then eventually it just went dark permanently and it didn't look like at any point that it was generating any thrusts because you could watch you know during that live feed you could watch the velocity of the vehicle going down and it just continued to go down right at uh, the second stage ignition, there didn't seem to be any change in how quickly it was losing velocity. Maybe there mm-hmm. was, and you can't see it, but it definitely didn't go up in speed. Like, you know, there was no increase. So if it could have been, you know, still then thrusting with less than a G and still be decelerating, right. but still producing some thrust to enable it to kind of get a little bit of something. But yeah, no, it was, it was just flickering essentially pretty tragically because it was trying. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I could only imagine being on the team and watching that and just like, ah, oh, damn it. And, you know, the, the live coverage, there was a lot of cheers once the second stage lit, but it didn't, you know, stay on. And I was like, ugh, <laughs> mm. um, this isn't good. I felt, I felt bad for the whole team because uh, they were really excited. Mm-hmm. I mean, how could they not be? Right, right. But, and there was also a lot of gimbling. So, uh, like a lot yeah, of thrust vectoring going on. You know what the story with that is? Because that's the only thing I could see is just the engine, you know, kind of yeah, wiggling around essentially. Perhaps it was just a result of the fact that there was no thrust, and so there was it was trying to maintain a certain orientation, which is a lot harder to do when you're just kind of tumbling. Mm-hmm. It was probably entering into a tumble, and if you have thrust, it's coming off in a very uh, chaotic way. Then that's going to send that second stage into some kind of a tumble, I would imagine, you know, because it wasn't a good solid, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It wasn't fluid or it it was not steady. So when you're trying to make corrections with shaky thrust, it's just going to make the situation worse. Um, That's my take. I don't know. This is all speculative, obviously. We we don't know exactly what happened because uh, (laughs) I'm sure we'll talk about it again in the coming weeks or months, uh, however long it is before they get more information. But um, yeah, I don't know. Do you have any other theories? No, I, I, I think you're right. That does make sense. And, and Chris in the chat kind of echoing that too, that you know, if it's, if it's no longer going on its correct trajectory, then what it's going to try to do is just GNC, try to bring it to where it's supposed to be. And it can do that by gimbling the engine and that poor little thing couldn't do much of anything at that point. <laughs> yeah. <And> so yeah. <laughs> One thing I was looking at was like, is the engine gimbals, you can see that the second stage itself is moving quite a bit. Now, is that a result of the engine itself gimbling? I don't know if there would be much movement. Or just being that less stable. Yeah. Right, you, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah, Scott Milley talks about how you can try to pick uh, a couple of lights on the Florida coast as a frame of reference to see that it is pitching or, you know, yawing relative to them, like, consistently. And so there's there is something going on, but that, but the fact that those uh, lights stay in frame means that it's not flipping. And I guess the fact that it's in one piece <laughs> during all the footage yeah. means that it hasn't, it hasn't finished tumbling. That probably happened later as it went splashing down in the Atlantic somewhere. Nice and safe. So one thing that I learned in trying to figure out if it was an engine start problem, it might use a resonance ignition system, which... To be honest, I don't think I've ever heard of, uh, and this is like a kind of old technology. I don't know how much it's used, but it's, I mean, there's papers on it apparently going back quite a few decades, actually. I think maybe even back into the 70s. Mm. I, I don't know if, if this particular system was used on rockets at that point, but it's, you know, something that's been around for a while. And it seems that that's what they're using. 
it's considered a passive system because I guess once you start flowing the fuel through the system, it flows through a little component, which causes some kind of resonance, which in turn creates heat. And then that heat causes ignition. So by flowing the fuel mm. itself, you're able to actually heat the fuel and then ignite it, which is pretty clever. Um, it what? takes some amount of pressure, but not a lot. I think just a couple bar. That's a pretty cool system. If that is indeed uh, how these engines start, although it, whatever they were doing in this case didn't seem to work. Um, but I would love to hear more about yeah. that. Again, this is all news to me, and you'd think that we yeah. would have heard of this at least. I mean, I have and perhaps Ben knows about it. I don't know. <laughs> He's not here. Maybe Ben knows something about resonance ignition. We'll have to get the update from Ben next week. <laughs> but yeah, no, and because because that's kind of what I'm wondering is right. This is the same engine, right? It's it's vacuum optimized, and it's trying to ignite in a vacuum but you know mm -hmm. what what is going to ultimately be the issue is it is it specific to you know the way that the engine's built and trying to ignite under those conditions that cause it to fail or was it just a eh, you know a, a filter got loose and hit something that hit something else and you know blocked something so it couldn't ignite i don't know you know is it was it a random act or a sy potentially systemic one because, right, I mean, if it's 85, if the rocket's 85% 3D printed, that means, right, most of the engine's 3D printed. And so I wonder if that can lead to any, well, I mean, that's, I guess, something that they would just need to redesign. And I guess that's, the nice thing about this is it's a lot easier to redesign these engines <laughs> when they're 3D printed mostly. You know, you, you change some program somewhere <laughs> rather yeah. than uh, have to... <laughs> create new tooling and you know this is just you know the first this is their first rocket the next one which is what they call mm. the uh r terran r yeah. yeah the terran r which is supposed to be fully reusable and they're planning on doing that and and it looks like <laughs> we talked about this a couple weeks ago how it looks a lot like a starship um, especially <laughs> if you put it next to the terran one so it's about the same difference in size it's it's not <laughs> as big but it looks a lot like one so yeah i don't know if that made the cup but if anyone if it didn't make the cut or if anyone listening yeah, didn't listen I'm to last sure week's did. episode, <laughs> we basically, the three of us, were looking at a picture of a Terran R talking about it as though it was a starship for a good, like, couple minutes before one of us realized <laughs> that, oh, wait, this isn't a starship at all. So, it, you know, it passed that test, at least for... <laughs> <laughs> fooling the three of us <laughs> yeah it looks it looks a lot like a starship but um so yeah there was no fairing on this vehicle since this was just a test flight instead they just had like an aerodynamic cone uh, but one interesting cargo because we were wondering if there was going to be any cargo they had a six inch wide metal ring which was somehow mounted inside the nose cone and this was one of the very first things that they had printed and so i guess as a homage to their it's ingenuity. a nice piece of memorabilia <laughs> to put on yeah. there. Yeah. Without any uh, significant risk of like, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then I guess, you know, I, this is just the second one that bit the dust for trying to be the first uh, methane-fueled rocket to reach orbit. And so China's uh, Juchui-2 had failed. I believe that was last year at some point. Um, Terran-1, I think, was the second one to try to go orbital using uh, methane and liquid oxygen. And I guess up next are Vulcan and Starship, and I don't know if there's anybody else still there. And so the race is still on to be what's going to be the first one <laughs> uh, to use methane for fuel and make it to orbit. But space is hard, and I forget who, uh, where I had saw it, uh, where I saw it, um, one of these uh, websites, news websites, but they were covering the Terran 1 launch as like the sixth rocket to fail in four months or something like that. So again, it's kind of like 
I don't remember the last time an American rocket reached orbit that wasn't like Falcon 9, you know? <laughs> it's kind of getting crazy. Yeah. Okay, cool. So the race is still on. The race um, is still I'm... on. <laughs> so this week, let's do three short and sweets. Uh, Dennis, what is the first? Private South Korean company launches suborbital rocket from Brazil. Launch vehicle startup InnoSpace has successfully launched a suborbital rocket from Brazil's Alcantara Space Center. The 16.3 meter long single stage hand-bit TLV vehicle lifted off at 1.52 a.m. local carrying a Brazilian-built inertial navigation system. The rocket is propelled by a 15-ton thrust hybrid engine that uses liquid oxygen and a paraffin-based fuel. After a four and a half minute flight, the vehicle splashed down off the coast. The company's next planned vehicle is the Hamid Nano, a two-stage orbital rocket designed to take a 50 kilogram payload to sun-synchronous orbit. And then next up, the NS-23 anomaly has been identified. Investigation into the New Shepard mid-flight abort last September has concluded that a design change to its engine caused the anomaly that led to the abort. A boundary layer hot streak in the engine's exhaust caused overheating that in turn caused a structural failure and thrust misalignment. Blue Origin said that it is making further design changes to remedy the issue. No exact date has been announced for the New Shepard's next flight, though it has said it will be soon. And finally, key climate science satellite instrument back online. NASA announced that a malfunctioning instrument on the Surface Water and Ocean Topography, or SWAT, mission is back online. Three months after the CARIN instrument, which stands for KA Band Radar Interferometer, unexpectedly shut down, NASA and CNES together found a solution to getting it working again by using a backup power unit. Officials didn't disclose the cause of the anomaly. CARIN consists of two antennas spaced 10 meters or 33 feet apart and is designed to map the Earth's surface water to an unprecedented degree. That's pretty cool. Bringing your interferometer, like your 33-foot baseline interferometer, onto the spacecraft. Like, I like that. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. And we have a correction from somebody in our Discord. Ask Gaudet. I don't I know how to say the name. I think it's I think it's AC Saudi. Oh, okay. The there you go. There's a name in there. But, yeah. <laughs> so AC Saudi just pointing out that last week when we were talking about aerospikes, we got a few details wrong, um, and so I think uh, we we kind of said that uh, the first ones were linear, but there were actually toroidal ones before the linear ones, where the the famous linear one is the one that was actually built and tested, and then also that for the linear one, uh, I think we said that it was. Uh, we made it sound like it was either one combustion chamber or one combustion chamber per side. I can't remember which, but there was seven different chambers on each side. And so that's how you had them lined up like that. Yeah. So I remember, cause I think Ben said all that. And I remember thinking, I think he just mixed up the words perhaps. Cause I think that might explain it. If you, if you reverse toroidal and linear, then it does mm. make sense. I mean, he's not here. So <laughs> right, right. Um, perhaps we should just save this one for next week. When he is. But aerospikes, yeah, linear, toroidal, very, very different. And I think the coolest takeaway is that just how long or how long the the idea of a, an aerospike has been around because <laughs> these toroidal ones have been thought about since the Apollo days, which is wild. Yeah. So let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. We have just one winner, possibly more, and we don't know about it thanks to Twitter um, not working <laughs> as it used to, but we know that we have the Greek because uh, that was an email guess. Um, but if you used the hashtag this week SF on Twitter, which I know is what we say to use every week, it, it might not be working anymore. Yeah, we're not so sure we can get those. Yeah. <laughs> At any rate, the uh, clue was low power mode. Yeah, what is the event for that? Because 
that didn't uh, ring any bells for me. No, but I say we, uh, yeah, we got one good guess, uh, and the Greek got it all. And it was on the 31st of March, 1993, and it was the launch of Progress M17 from Baikonur. And so this, uh, I know I always seem to say this is going to be a short, sweet, and su- this is going to be my short and sweet this week in spaceflight history, <laughs> because there isn't really that much uh, to find about this mission. Uh, I still think there's some cool, neat little bits to it. But honestly, outside of the wiki entry, my sources are a pair of books that are not online. And so there's the Mir Heritage uh, uh, book by Portree and the story of Space Station Mir by Harland. Um, they have uh, basically like a little bit written, like a paragraph each on this mission. But it's kind of cool, I think. Enough to be worth uh, being a twissif. So for context, uh, this is 1993. So this is pre-Norm Thaggard and the shuttle... Uh, Mir missions, uh, actually having NASA astronauts on board. And what is, uh, and this progress specifically went to Mir. And so at this point, uh, what does Mir look like? Well, it's got the base block, the core module that we covered as a TWISIF uh, just weeks ago. Um, it's got Kavant 1, which also lies along the main axis. Uh, it's just aft of the uh, core uh, module or base block. And then it has the two uh, Russian modules, Kavant 2 and Crystal, which are, uh, in that case, going radially out at the front of the base block base block. And also at this time, the uh, Sephora mast is installed, uh, which is a pretty cool thing that might be a future twisif. And so this is a long mast with a thruster pack at the end of it um, on the space station. But another uh, uh, mast that uh, was deployed on Mir, uh, the Rapana mast, uh, wasn't there yet. And so it's it's a small Mir compared to, well, it's missing a few modules. Uh, than where it ultimately got to. And right, there's such a long lineage of these Progress spacecraft. Um, M, for being Progress M17, uh, meant that it was a variant that was modernized, uh, specifically uh, modernizing the flight control systems uh, of the spacecraft. And so uh, basically in the 80s, when they were moving forward with Mir, uh, they wanted to have uh, the progress basically, you know, it was like time to kind of ramp it up and modernize it so that way it'll be able to support this uh, multi-module space, space station that was very ambitious that the uh, Soviets were building. And so anyway, the, you know, progress M17 launches. So a Soyuz U2, uh, you know, took it to orbit. And a few days after, uh, March 31st, it docked to uh, Kavant 1 at the aft end of the station, so along the main axis. And we had talked, too, about how uh, the little Liapa arm would grab the radial modules Mm -hmm. and move them out of the way, potentially, because you wanted to do your docking mostly along that main axis until the uh, Mm -hmm. specialized adapter was put for for the shuttle missions. It weighed uh, seven and a quarter tons, metric tons, and carried, you know, food, water, oxygen, some research equipment, some propellant. Another thing that we had talked about, uh, how you could transfer propellant through these spacecraft to the station. And uh, it also carried the seventh uh, VBK Radoga capsule. And we had mentioned this once years ago, but these were these capsules that you could basically fill up with up to 150 kilograms of goodies and then just return it to Earth and have it kind of pile back through the atmosphere, like a, basically like the same kind of principle as these uh, uh, sample return missions do. And then it has a little parachute that brings it down nice and safely, and you can pick up the contents and preserve it that way because progresses would burn up uh, upon reentry uh, when they would... Uh, leave the station and try to re-enter the atmosphere. But because of the particulars of 
Progress M17's mission. Uh, it actually, uh, the Radoga capsule was transferred to Progress M18 and didn't come back until November. And it had some uh, sample cassettes that I think uh, these are the kind of things that they typically would put on the outside of the space station and just like, you know, see how material exposed to the space environment behaves. Um, it also carried a small piece of the base block's thermal blanket, as well as a Boeing experiment. And according to one of the sources, the uh, Boeing experiment, I mean, Boeing was like really, really impressed with how great a job the cosmonauts did with uh, checking on it. Like, I think they were just supposed to turn it on and that would have been fine. But instead, uh, it had some, uh, the, the cosmonauts were logging the temperature, you know, every day or multiple times a day. And so Boeing was very, very, very pleased with their work that they did. Anyway, after this TWISIF, uh, Progress M18, the one that ended up getting the radical capsule transferred to it, uh, arrived. Uh, and when that happened, M17 was still at the rear of the, uh, the you know, the aft end of the station at Kavant 1, while uh, the mission that the spacecraft that had carried the cosmonauts was Soyuz uh, TM-16, and that was parked at Crystal. And so Progress M18 had to basically park at the front end of the station. And that was the first time that two progresses were ever docked simultaneously on Mir, and probably any time. And so after, you know, just some time, you know, it's not like there's that much exciting things that a progress does, uh, unless it starts spewing uh, coolant all over the place. They tend to just sit there passively on orbit and serve as a nice, helpful, convenient you know, place to store things, I guess, and get equipment from. So uh, on August 11th, it undocks. Um, at that point, uh, Progress M19 had already launched, and it would arrive two days after this docking. M17 uh, had just spent 132 days at the station. And so rather, though, than just uh, deorbiting and ending its, uh, its little, you know, life as a uh, kind of otherwise a, just a, another run-of-the-mill progress, instead it became part of a, uh, a quote-unquote lifeboat demo. The idea was uh, a year earlier, 1992, uh, NASA had approached the uh, uh, the Russian space agency about buying a Soyuz TM uh, to serve as a rescue vehicle for space station freedom. Right. So this was still thinking about hmm. you know when the U.S. was going to go about it uh, without uh, Russians, and it wasn't going to be the ISS that we know today. Okay, so if you're going to have a, a Soyuz a TM spacecraft as your uh, lifeboat, um, it would need to, you know, to make it reasonable, it would, you know, need to survive on orbit for 365 days, which was uh, double the accepted limit uh, that they could, uh, you know, that they were certified for. And so since um, Soyuz uh, spacecraft and Progresses have the same propulsion system, the idea was, okay, well, let's see if a Progress uh, could survive that long and still have its propulsion work. Um, and therefore, you know, if, if uh, progress could survive for 365 days and still, you know, fire its engines fine, then a Soyuz TM ought to be able to do that as well. And thus it could potentially be a lifeboat for space station freedom. And so that was the idea there. And so that's what M17 got tasked to do after its undocking. So a little bit about the, the, the propulsion system. Um, it's called uh, KDU. It uses uh, unsymmetrical dimethylhydrazine and nitrogen tetroxide as its uh, hypergolic fuels and, or fuel and oxidizer. 
and um, what uh, you know, it's it's uh, advance over earlier um, Soyuz and Progress propulsion systems is that it unified a lot of the plumbing between the different propulsion systems, right? So it's got its main engine, it's got its RCS thrusters, you know, it's got you know different size thrusters for different types of maneuvers and attitude control. It also had a new ablative combustion chamber that really kind of pared down on the amount of uh, cooling that they had to do uh, on it there, and it had. Uh, um, like I said, right, if, if, if 365 days was double the accepted limit, that meant that um, the spacecraft had their propulsion system certified for 180 days, although the propellant specifically could survive for a year. Um, and so the idea was, well, all right, let's just see if it can, the whole spacecraft can survive more than this 180 days um, with the, you know, because you're always building in margin into this type of stuff. And so, yeah, so M... Progress uh, M17 undocks, it moves to a lower orbit, and then it enters uh, this week's clue. It enters a low power mode, since you're going to basically, if it's a lifeboat on your space station Freedom, you would probably want to just put in a low power mode and let it just sit there. And so, yeah, so it kind of sat there passively um, and didn't power back up until almost a year later, uh, at least a year after it had launched, March 2nd of 1994. And so at that point, you know, everyone holds their breath and it did a few maneuvers successfully. Uh, I'd seen one source refer to it as flawlessly uh, completing those maneuvers. And so it looked like it could still work and that would be, you know, great. And uh, yeah, but at that point, <laughs> uh, the landscape had changed and uh, they were like, yeah, we're not going to use it as a lifeboat anymore. We don't want to do that <laughs> anymore. And so it's like, yeah. okay, well, you know, it was a, it's a fun thing to do. But, you know, how many times do you run into these dead ends in spaceflight, it seems, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. This is cool because I did not know about this. Like, I mean, so, I mean, I guess because it was part of Space Station Freedom and that never got off the ground. But the idea that this was what, in 1990. Two, right? Yeah, they mm. approached him. So this is this was like the year or the year after uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, right? And then mm. NASA approaches them and says, "Can we use one of your spacecraft for one of our escape spacecraft for our space station Freedom?" And it, it just seems odd that like that was the dynamic back then. Apart from the International Space Station, you don't really see that level of cooperation. And I guess, well, it's 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 not even that. It's that this is like an American space station, but we want a Russian lifeboat. You, like, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? It, it just seems odd. I mean, it's cool, but to be honest, like I'm very surprised that that was ever on the table. I would not have expected that. No, it, yeah, it really, it, it does seem almost counterintuitive, but my understanding... And I, and I could be wrong about this, is that like immediately after the fall, there was a lot of at the high level of governments trying to be like, well, let's let's engage now more than ever. You know what I mean? Like, let's try to bring mm -hmm. them maybe more into the kind of Western sphere, maybe not make them, you know, Western ally sort of thing. Right. Maybe that would they knew that was too naive, but still we want to engage them. Let's let's buy stuff from them if we can especially you know any rockets or things like that you yeah, know let's yeah. let's try to let's try to bring them into the i guess the national order and try to you know capitalize on it so i, I and i think that's that's then how something like a shuttle mirror got birthed i don't know if it was even i don't know if it was on the cards at this point shuttle mirror was 93 to 98 yeah so this is this is right in the era of shuttle mirror so yeah so there was like a lot of cooperation going on and i think you're right because we we'd spoken about this multiple times that it's probably that they wanted to kind of say, hey, you know, hey, we'll buy some of those rockets or whatever, you know, just to keep mm. you from selling them to someone else. Um, right, right. Yeah, and, you know, just keep them close. Uh, keep your 
potential enemies closer, I suppose, to keep them, you know, your allies, I guess, uh, during this turbulent time. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, this is a cool idea. I, th I think the most counterintuitive thing would be that this, like, like when you when you said that space station freedom, I mean, with a name like that, yeah, and then you go and have a uh, you know a former adversary's uh, spacecraft to serve as your rescue vehicle. I could imagine a lot of Congress critters complaining about something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, even if it's a good idea, technically, you know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, anyway, yeah. So, Progress M17 spent uh, ultimately 205 days in uh, free flight uh, for 337 days total until it then uh, re-entered uh, the atmosphere and burned up uh, off the southeast coast of South America. And that was the end of a uh, progress that punched above its weight, I'll say. And that's this week in spaceflight history. I like the ones where I learn about an event most of these are things that I, I don't know, know something about, but then this is like something that I didn't know anything about, the oh. idea of using Russian spacecraft for an American space station. That's pretty wild. So now next week, uh, that's going to be Ben's uh, turn, but he's not here. So I guess you can do the honors for him. Uh, the okay. date range is the 4th through the 10th of April, and do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 1963, Tub in Tow. Tub in tow. Yeah. Not tow and tub, right? Not tow and tub. Tub in tow. So if you think you know what that clue is in reference to, probably don't bother using This Week SF because we're not sure if that's going to work, but you can join our Discord for free. So that's one way to get the clue in. And if not, you can uh, shoot us an email at info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So yeah, use info at theorbitalmechanics.com. That's what we got for right now until Ben can give us some more information. <laughs> he is the expert on that. Yeah. All right, so let's move right along to upcoming spaceflight events. We got like five launches, one other thing to announce, or one other thing that's going to be announced. So what's the first launch? First up, we've got a demo flight. And so this is uh, the Tianlong-2 rocket from uh, Space Pioneer, a uh, private Chinese company. And uh, this is, yeah, like I said, uh, their demo flight. So this would be their first uh, uh, launch. And they plan to carry two satellites to a 500-kilometer sun-synchronous orbit. Uh, not much details uh, known about that, but, I mean, taking two satellites as SSO is plenty good for me. And so the launch would take is aimed to take place on Wednesday, March 29th, with a window from 0642 to 0807 UTC, uh, flying out of Juchuan, which is the launch pad in Inner Mongolia, or rather the launch center in Inner Mongolia, I should right, say. Yeah. <laughs> After that, on the 29th, we have the launch of a Soyuz 2-1V uh, with a Volga upper stage. And that's a Russian Space Forces launch. And uh, that's launching EOMKA number four, which is a Russian reconnaissance satellite of unknown purposes, it says. Uh, possibly in the same series as 2551, blah, blah, blah. I think we talked about this one last week. And if not, we talked about a very similar payload because um, mm -hmm. I remember mentioning that. So this one, it's also going into sun synchronous orbit. So yeah, probably a reconnaissance satellite. The launch time for that is on March 29th uh, from 1900 UTC through 2100. From launch site 43-4 or 43-R, I'm not sure which is which because I hate these Russian designations. I don't know how to read them. <laughs> and if I could quick uh, uh, self-correction burn from last week, I mentioned that I think I think I, I mentioned that these were uh, like Strela military communication satellites, and that's just because I juxtaposed uh, Cosmos that they are like 
with a cosmos that they are not like. And so in reality, these are, um, these are Russian recon satellites, but they're not like the Strela uh, military comms satellites. And then next up on uh, Wednesday, March 29th, we've got a Falcon 9 taking Starlink Group 510 to LEO. Again, this is Wednesday, March 29th with a window that crosses into March 30th uh, with it starting at 2001 UTC and ending at 2354 UTC. So if I'm reading that correctly, that is a very long window that is longer than 24 hours. But anyway, flying out of the Cape as they often do at Slick 40 specifically. And then after that on the 30th, we have a Falcon 9 Block 5 and that is launching the STA Tranche 0 or Tranche 0. And this is um, some kind of a military satellite, communication satellite, it seems like. Uh, and there's quite a few of them, I think, and this is just one of them. It's going into a polar orbit. I don't know much about these. It's interesting. And it looks like it might even have something to do with missile tracking, perhaps. This is a whole big thing where like, so the Space Development Agency with that innocuous name is like, it's, it's, it's a wing of the Space Force, essentially. And their idea, I think, is to just get private companies to keep, you know, winning contracts and sending up these missile tracking or other, you know, types of spacecraft for military purposes and just do them in these tranches and just refresh them with more and more mm-hmm. private small satellites over time. Mm, um, that's okay. my my kind of clumsy way of <laughs> describing it as I understand it. Yeah. And so that's launching on the 30th of March, like I said, uh, from 1359 UTC to 1606 UTC. And that's launching from Vandenberg. Uh, Space Force Base from Slick 4E. So you can check that one out probably. And then next up, we have another private Chinese company. We've got iSpace, and they are going to attempt to fly their Hyperbola 1 rocket uh, with an unspecified payload. They had successfully flown in 2019 um, to LEO, and then they had three failures to SSO since then, uh, two in 2021 and one last year. And so we'll see if this one, which is going to, I don't know what orbit, but probably SSO if the last three tried to go there. But who knows? Uh, just speculating at this point. This is uh, launching on uh, Sunday, April 2nd, with a window from 0300 UTC to 0900 UTC. Um, that's per NOTAMs. And this one also will be flying out of Juchuan in the People's Republic of China. And then finally, uh, we have on NASA TV, or however you watch NASA TV stuff, on the 3rd of April, the announcement of the crew they will be flying on the Artemis II mission. That will begin at 11 in the morning Eastern Time. Uh, looks like it's being broadcast from Johnson Space Center. So yeah, check that out. That'll be interesting to see yeah, who the actual crew will be. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And that means it's time to do with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Mike, Chris, a.k.a. Sty Garfield, The Greek, and Leon Running Man for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And you can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you on next week on Orbit. Until then, later. See you.